Thanks, Dave. Well, as we continue to worship our awesome God, if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to John, and we'll be in John chapter 1 again. As we enter into this yet another season of lockdown, so just a couple of reminders that uh, for young adults, we're going to be postponing our young adult conference. Uh, if you have any questions about that, please talk to Matt and Ann Watt, and they would love to talk to you. A little bit more about what is coming up with that young adult conference called the Cross Conference. But if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to John chapter 1, and we'll be in verses 43 to the end of the chapter in verses 50, uh, 51. And as we do that, let me open up in prayer. Father God, we just thank you that we get to continue to worship you. Uh, Lord, it may be a little different than what we desire but Lord, I thank you for this ability that we have to do it this way. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified, that you'd be honored. And as we look into your word today, Lord, I pray that we continue to worship you. Lord, I pray that you are glorified. And God, I want to speak of you and praise you and praise your name. And God, there's no gifting that can make this turn out well on its own. So Lord, by your spirit, will you help me to preach this sermon with what is needed? Lord, use this sermon to bring glory to your name and joy to your people and salvation to the loss, and amen. In John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51, it says this. The word of the Lord says this. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, uh, Can anything come, anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. This is the fourth day of the writer John introducing Jesus. The first day, John the Baptist explains who he is and then who, what he is about. On the second day, the writer John identifies Jesus. And on the third day, Jesus calls two disciples to come and to see where he is. And we saw the importance of that three steps of discipling. But as we continue on into this fourth day, as we enter into this fourth day, we see Jesus hinting that those who he calls will see more than they could possibly understand and expect. So in verses 43 to 45, we see this. To know Jesus is simply to follow Jesus. To know Jesus is to follow Jesus. Jesus comes in 43, he says, follow me. Different from those before him, if you've noticed, 
Think about how the other three have followed Jesus. Andrew and John follow through uh, John the Baptist's proclamation. So John the Baptist comes and proclaims this is who Jesus is. Simon was led to Christ by his brother's personal testimony, testimony. But now we see that not all conversions look the same. Jesus intimately calls people to himself in many different ways. It really shows that Jesus can call anyone whom he pleases into the kingdom of heaven. With all of these people that Jesus called, but there is one common element, one common thread, they followed him. Regardless of how God calls these people to himself, the outcome of being called is to follow Jesus. It's why it's great to hear testimonies of how God has worked in the lives of many people. I love hearing them. I love hearing their stories. It's one of the blessings I have of, of teaching our membership class or our baptism classes. I get to hear how God has called them to, and they're all different. Every single last one of them is different, but all of those people, all of those men and women are seeking to simply follow Jesus. So what does it mean to follow Jesus, you may ask? It means that you are to follow his manner of life, his attitude towards other, and his submission to the will of the Father. If I'm a follower of Jesus, and I come along and say, God, I'm just not going to submit myself to who you are, then I have a problem. That's counter to who Jesus was. Because Jesus, he submitted himself to the will of the Father to the cross. And to be a follower of Jesus is to do the same. In Luke 9, 23, it says, uh, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. See, following Jesus is really easy when life is going smoothly. It's really easy. But our true commitment shows when life gets hard. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus assured us that trials will come to his followers. I do not understand this thread of what is called Christianity, where they say, come to, Christi come to Christ and everything will get good. Will be get good. Will become better. Your finances will become more. There's no, there's no sense of that. Jesus himself even comes and says, there's going to be trials if you follow me. Discipleship demands sacrifice, and Jesus never hid the cost of following him. Not once. In Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62, we see three people who seemed willing to follow Jesus, but when Jesus asked them just a few little questions, their commitment was truly shown. They failed to count the cost of following Jesus. None of those three people were willing to take up his cross and crucify upon it their own interests. To come and follow Jesus, to be called by Jesus, to know Jesus is to follow Jesus. And when we look at how Jesus presented the gospel, it kind of looks like he is trying to dissuade them, which is completely weird, right? When we go up and we tell someone, we, we're, we're really seeking to try and convince someone to follow Jesus. But Jesus comes along and he actually says, oh, it's going to cost you a lot. When was the last time you told the gospel to someone and you actually said, hey, uh, this is who Jesus is, this is who you are. Well, first, this is who God is. God is holy. Uh, you're not. You're a sinner. You've rebelled against God. Because of that sin, you, you deserve punishment, which is eternal damnation in hell. 
But let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus and who he is and what he's done for you through how he stepped down from his throne. He added to himself humanity. He was born of a baby. He grew up. He died the most agonizing death we could possibly think of on a Roman cross. And he died, died. Not fake died, died. And then three days later, he rose again, showing that there is hope for me and for you if you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and rest in the gospel that Christ died for your sins. But when was the last time we added on to the other part? And I'm guilty of this myself, but it's going to cost you. It's going to cost. To follow Jesus is to submit in all sorts of different ways. When we look at how Jesus presented the gospel, it looks like he's persuading. How different from the typical gospel presentation that we see. How many people would respond to the altar call that went, come follow Jesus and you may face the loss of friends, family, reputation, and career. And possibly even your life. This is what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me. To know Jesus is to follow him. This is what it means to obey the call of Jesus to follow him. So then here are some questions for you. Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing some of your closest friends? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means alienating from your family? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means the loss of reputation? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing your job? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing your life? I know that we, in this North American context in Canada, we're not quite there, but we're getting there. It's getting close. Where for so long in Canada, we, were, we did not have to count the cost of following Jesus but now we are having to. Think of any number of situations, sexuality, homosexuality, any of those main topics, abortion, and you actually begin to talk about what the Bible talks about, you begin to see that your friends are beginning to not like you very much. There is a cost. You know, in some places of the world, there's co- these consequences are reality, but notice the questions are, are you willing Following Jesus doesn't necessarily mean all of these things will happen to you. But are you willing to take up your cross? If there, if there comes a point in your life where you are faced with a choice, Jesus or the comforts of this temporary life, which will you choose? Commitment to Christ means taking up your cross daily, giving up your hopes and your dreams, your passions, even your very life, if need be, for the cause of Christ. Only if you're willing to take up your cross may you be called his disciple, as Jesus himself says in Luke 14. So here's the question. So to know Christ is to follow Christ, which means to follow Christ, we need to understand that there's a cost of following Christ. Are you willing to have your lifestyle changed and your priorities turned upside down for Christ? It's a telling question, isn't it? I've been thinking about it this week as I've been looking at it. But how you answer it shows how you view the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 13, this is the crazy one, 
He comes along in Matthew 13, 44, and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, he says, which a man found and, and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. Why is the kingdom described as such a treasure? That this man is willing to sell everything he has, to give everything he has up to just buy this field so he can get that treasure. What makes that treasure so much better than everything else that he has? And as you're counting the costs, we have to realize that equation, that what we give up is in nothing comparison to what we gain in Christ. In Christ, you are adopted as sons and daughters of the living God, the creator of the universe. This is who you are. Your identity is changed. Those who receive the kingdom treasure it more than everything else. You don't buy it. You get it freely because you want it more than you want anything else. It's like at Christmas, and you've opened up all of your presents. And then your parents, your dad, this is something I would do. Your dad comes to you and, and he says, I have one more present for you. And you can't open it yet, but you have to give me this answer. Are you going to give up all of these for this present that I have in my hand? It is better. I know, you know, you, I know that you're going to think it's better, but are you going to give up all of those for this? And that's what Jesus says of counting the cost. The kingdom of God is far better. The reward is worth the price. Jesus followed his call of death to self. Take up your cross and follow me, he says, with the gift of life in Christ. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it, as Matthew 16 says, is that not more valuable than anything than to find your life? And I pray that we may follow Christ and count the cost of following him because we see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as our Lord and Savior. Because to follow Jesus is also to rely upon him for your salvation. These, there's this amazing quote by a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he said it this way, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Right? When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. What does that look like to follow Christ? For Bonhoeffer, it means standing up against the Nazi regime. For a woman like Judy uh, Tetchin, which I, I butchered, but whatever, it meant risking the life of her family as she tells her Jewish father that she has found the Messiah. That she believes that Jesus is the Messiah. For many of our brothers and sisters in areas of the world, like the Arab world today, it means the prospect of violent death. For you and for me, living in this great country, it means forsaking materialistic self-absorption in order to serve and give. To be saved, we must follow 
Jesus. To know Jesus is to follow Jesus. To know Jesus is to follow him. If you want to follow him, you will find that he is better than anything this world has to offer. And do not hear me say that life is going to be easy. It won't. But you'll find your life. You will find eternal life that is only in Jesus Christ. You need to be aware of it. It will cost, not in terms of your life, not in terms of you uh, gaining or having to pay something for your salvation. Salvation is a free act of God. You are saved by grace and grace alone. But to accept that treasure means that you may have to give up other treasures. And that could be anything. There's something better here. Verses 45 to 46, we see to know Jesus is to call others to come and see. In verse 45, Philip found Nathanael. He goes and he finds his brother and he says, Philip's first act as a disciple of Jesus was to go find Nathanael. He says to him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. So, so Philip comes and he gets very specific. It's not like, hey, I just found the Messiah. No, no, no. That guy named Jesus, you know the Jesus that's the son of Joseph? You remember that thing that we heard about that happened in Bethlehem not too long ago? That Jesus. He's very specific. That Jesus. Jesus recognizes that, or sorry, Philip recognizes that all of the OT, both law and prophets, anticipated a great redemption, redemption of, of God's work to be accomplished by a special anointed one. That the whole Old Testament anticipated Christ and his coming and what he would do and affirms Christ himself. But what's interesting is, is verse 46. Because Nathaniel's response is kind of funny. So Philip comes to Nathaniel and he says, Look, I found Jesus. I found the Messiah. I found him. And Nathaniel's response was, Wait, he's from Nazareth? Can 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 anything can anything good come out of Nazareth? And at the same time, there's a bit of a stumbling block that's happening here to Nathaniel's faith. And how often when we're presenting the good news of Jesus Christ, when we tell someone that we loved and cherished, we say, look, I found the one who who can fix you, who can heal your brokenness who can make you right before God, who 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 can give you purpose. And their response is often that guy? Didn't he die or something? So many stumbling blocks that happen. Nathaniel was from a nearby town called Cana. We see that in chapter 21, verse 2. Nazareth was the rival town. It would be like saying Jesus was a graduate of a rival college with a rival football team, different colors. I know it's not the same up here in Canada, but when you talk to someone in the States, we have friends of ours who live or are from Alabama. And my goodness, it's, it's crazy down there. It, 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 you know, how dare you have different colors than my colors? And it is this rivalry that happens. But Philip's response was an amazing response to this. You notice that Philip doesn't come and try to use apologetics or the latest, greatest arguments in order to win someone to Christ. All he simply does is this. 
as we see later on, he says, come and see. There's no argument. There's no arguing or reasoning. It's a reminder for me that there's no such, there's, not, there, there, there's no good in arguing, which is hard for me as being an argumentative person. But we come here and all Philip does to Nathaniel's response, he just says, all right, you don't believe me? Come and see. We aren't arguing people into the kingdom of God. We're simply calling people to come and see the Savior. Behold the kingdom of God. We are simply calling them to come and see. Beholding Jesus is more compelling than anything that Philip could say. Beholding Jesus is more compelling than anything that you can say or what I can say to make people come to Jesus. Behold in Jesus is more compelling. Honest inquiry is a sovereign cure for prejudice. But what we see here is the same we see in verse 39. In chapter, remember, if we go back to verse 39, he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was saying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. See, this is a challenge, not only to Nathaniel, but for you and for me who are, who are reading this passage. This Christmas season, what a better time than to call people to come and see who Jesus is. Who is the babe that was born in the manger? How is he the Savior? How is he the one who will save the world from their sin? Remember that woman I talked about, the woman named Judy, the one who had a Jewish father? Here's another story of her father, who God called to himself through the testimony of his daughter, simply saying, I have found Jesus, and he is the Messiah. Judy read the Bible. She was converted as she read the good news. And as she told her father, his, her father went on an explicit mission to disprove everything that Judy found. That's not exactly how it went, though. She's studying the New Testament. His name was Stan. Was shocked to learn how much of it quoted the Old Testament. He saw the huge number of Old Testament prophecies that were uh, purportedly fulfilled in the life and death of Christ. Indeed, it seemed that only someone like Jesus could fulfill them. He was struck as he read Jeremiah 31, which is in the Old Testament, of God's promise to make a new covenant that would be different from God's covenant with Moses, by which God would forgive our sins. He asked himself, why had I never talked, why have they never talked about this in the synagogue? A crisis came as he read Isaiah 53, the servant of the Lord who was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought his, us peace, that with his stripes we are healed. He went on to Psalm 22, written centuries beforehand, but speaking with an intimate accuracy of Jesus' crucifixion, including the actual words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Stan continued to ask, he asked himself, does Jesus of Nazareth fulfill these prophecies? Is Jesus the Messiah? He finally had no choice but to conclude that he does and he is. 
See, our job is not to come up with the greatest and latest, greatest arguments of coming to Jesus. Our job is to say, come and see. And part of that is opening the word of God with someone and saying, hey, uh, let's go through the gospel of John together. You want to do that? Just you and me, let's go to Tim, well, when Tim Hortons opens again, let's go to Tim Hortons, let's open up the Bible, let's walk through John. Hey, you want to stand, let's, 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 I got some propane heaters, right? Like, I can set them up on my porch, uh, you know, let's, let's go through this, we'll wear winter coats and toques. Like, you want to do this? I'll, I'll make coffee or tea, hot chocolate, whatever you got to do. Let's, let's, let's come and see. Come and see who Jesus is. When it comes to talking to people about Jesus, there's often, uh, there's often this fear that I don't know enough. And we don't know how to answer the questions that are going to come up. We don't know the greatest arguments. But here we see there are many ways to tell other people about Jesus. I don't need to be the smartest in the room. What I need to be is the closest to Jesus so that I could come to someone else and say, come and see. To know Jesus is to say to come and see. And if I found the greatest treasure, wouldn't you want others to see that too? And that's what Philip does. Wouldn't you say to your loved ones, come and see? And Philip found the most valuable gift. He was willing to give up everything. And he went to his brother, and he, to Nathaniel, and he said he, he didn't hesitate at all. He went to him and he said, I have found the Messiah. There's an expectation that if you are a disciple of Jesus, you will not only follow Jesus, but you will call others to come and see. As you come to Jesus, though, you will see these amazing things. You will see that he does something even greater. As you see in verses 47 to 41, or 51, to know Jesus is to see him do great and marvelous things things. In verse 47, it says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Or the NIV says, a true Israelite. True. I think of Romans 2, verses 28 to 29, which says this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So when Nathaniel's blunt, incredibly blunt criticisms of Nazareth, he was an Israelite without some sort of uh, wrong motives. He was willing to examine for himself the claims people made about Jesus. Philip said, come and see. Even with all of that criticism, he still came. Sometimes we get so heart-wrenched when, when people push back a little bit. But if that person is pushing back and they're still coming to meet with you, that means that they're still searching. And Nathaniel comes and he sees, and Jesus probably referred, so we go along here, and then we see Jesus is, is probably referring to Jacob when he called Nathaniel an, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jacob in the Old Testament was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. His name meant grasping or deceitful. And, and if, you know, if you've read the story of Jacob, you will clearly see a man who is incredibly deceitful. 
It's, it's funny how in Sunday school class we seem to elevate these people as like people to follow. But if my son came to me and said, I want to be like Jacob, I'd be like, no, you don't. Don't be like Jacob. Be like the one who calls him, as we see later on here. Which Jacob, which really, so these words really describe Jacob's character. But when he finally submits his heart to God, God changes his name to what? To Israel. So Jesus was saying here that Nathanael had no Jacob, but only Israel in him. And Nathanael, Nathanael's natural question is this. How in the world... Well, that's not exactly. He says, how do you know me? I've never seen you before. And Jesus' answer is telling of who he is because Jesus says that before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Mind-blowing. Philip comes and says, hey, come and, follow, come and see who just Jesus is. And Nathaniel, with his criticism, skepticism, he calls and says, all right, let's go see Jesus, the first thing Jesus says to him is, hey, uh, this is who you are. Nathaniel follows up with the question, how do you know me? Mind-blowing. And Jesus responds with, uh, before Philip even called you, while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Any sort of doubt in his mind has been gone. Has, has been erased. Jesus replies by showing that, that his supernatural knowledge extends beyond this. He saw Nathanael while he was still under the fig tree. Nathanael thought he was alone, that no one was watching him, that no eye was upon him. The Lord Jesus, by his divine power of seeing and knowing all things, was perfectly acquainted with all that Nathanael said, thought, and did. His eyes are in every place, as Proverbs 15 says. Which, on the flip side, can be part of the scariest thing, to come to Jesus. You're coming to Jesus, and he already knows everything about you. That, that little sin, or that big sin that you think he doesn't know about, he knows. He knows. Yet he still calls you. Jesus' words to Nathaniel show who he is shows that when we think we found have found Jesus it really is Jesus who has found us you see the order there it's not Nathaniel coming to find Jesus Jesus already saw him the word found shapes the action in this portion of John's gospel Andrew found his brother Simon and said we have found the messiah Jesus found Philip, and then Philip found Nathanael, saying, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and all, also the prophets wrote. But through all of these various means, it really was Jesus who was finding his disciples. He later explained, You did not choose me, in John 15, but I chose you. Before Philip called you, he told Nathanael, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And, and, and Nathaniel's response is in 49 as he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And when Jesus shows his knowledge of, of Nathaniel, and then you, then you combine that with the witness of Philip, any doubts is instantly removed. He's, now being, he's not being critical anymore. 
he approach, how he approaches Jesus is completely different. See, Nathan, Nathaniel, Nathan, Nathaniel now calls Jesus rabbi. And it doesn't stop there. Nathaniel himself makes a proclamation that you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He is the one who can take away the sins of the world. And when we rest in Jesus being God and king, we rest in him as Messiah. We are now adopted sons and daughters. We are now his. And in verse 50, Jesus in this conversation comes, he says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater, even greater things than these. This passage shows, again, the many ways that God calls people to himself and the many different ways that the gospel is proclaimed. But at the end, but it ends with a statement about a glorious salvation that every disciple of Christ experiences through him. Jesus has the last word in this fascinating account. It is said that seeing is believing, but Jesus says that believing also leads to seeing. If these disciples could see all that would occur in the years to come with Jesus, the miracles and the great confrontations, and especially his death and his resurrection, they would have been even more amazed. The same is for us. If we will believe and follow Jesus, we will see glorious things in the church. There is no greater miracle than God calling what was dead alive again. You are dead in Christ, the Bible says, and in Christ you are alive. There's no one out there that can take a a rotting corpse and make it alive again. There's no such thing as Dr. Frankenstein. But this is what Jesus does. You will see greater things. The average Christian who sincerely follows Jesus and and serves faithfully sees miracles happen in response to prayer. Sees hardened sinners turn sweetly to Jesus. Sees the lowly lifted up and sees proof after proof of the grace and the power of God at work through Jesus Christ. If you will follow him, you too will see greater things than you could ever imagine. It's hard for us sometimes to think this way. We often come and, and, and kind of get all beat up on ourselves and doubt God's goodness. But when we sit and actually reflect upon all of the things that God has done, we see all of these amazing, great things he has done for us. It's an amazing thing. And when I look at the Bible, I see all of these things and what God has done. As we look at this, we see that as we, as we continue to, as we continue to know Jesus, we need to see that we will also see greater things. Every Christian can expect to see greater things of what was dead being made live again. But we also need to see that to know Christ is to follow Christ. We also need to see that to know Christ is not only to follow Christ, but to also call other people to come and see Christ. And as those whom God has called to himself, they will see greater things happening. So what, you may ask yourself. 
the most important qualification for Jesus' disciples is to know his name. The most important qualification for Jesus' disciples is to know his name. That is to be absolutely clear in heart and mind about who he is and what he has done. The first disciples were given an immersion course in Christology and who Christ is. In a span of 16 verses, Jesus is identified as the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel, and the Son of Man. In 16 verses. And someone comes to me and says, well, why were we taking so long to go through John? Well, that's why. All messianic names that take on a fuller meaning throughout all of John's gospel. At the heart of all of these names is the truth that Jesus has come to save, to be the ladder from heaven to earth of which Jacob dreamed, and to which Jesus alluded to in John chapter 1, verses 51. But, do we, but we do not climb our way up to God. God in Christ comes down to us. The most important qualification for Jesus' disciples is to know his name. Let us pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for today, for the chance we have to continue to worship you and to magnify your name. And God, as we continue to worship you in song, as we continue to worship you in, 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 in reading your word and, and giving and all the other ways in which we worship you, Lord, I pray that we would continue to seek to know you. That we would, and as people who continue to seek to know you, that we would follow you. That we would also uh, call other people to, to come and see who you are. But also, Lord, knowing that to know you is to see you do great and marvelous things. God, I pray that we would be a people who are resting in the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for our sins and that he rose again. Lord, may we sing loudly of that and may we proclaim it. Lord, I pray that you would use Norwood to go into this city to proclaim this good news. May we be a light in the darkness. And Lord, we pray for all of our other gospel preaching churches here in London. And I pray that they may do the same. May you be glorified in us and may your kingdom grow here in London. And amen.